Madison. Thank you, brother and sister, for that music ministry. And um, thank you, worship team, for a wonderful time of exalting God and causing our hearts to focus on Him. I appreciate that. And um, I'm also grateful, just want to say a few words about the Sweetheart Banquet last night. So last night they changed this wonderful stage or chancel, whatever you want to call it, where we worship the Lord, into an intense arena of competition. (laughs) And four wonderful volunteers, young adults, uh, competed against each other here on stage, but mostly previously with preset competitions and tasks that they were assigned to do. And so we got to see the best of the best and a little bit of the worst of the best. Uh, from these guys, it was um, it was Drake and Noah and Peyton and Jaden, and there was uh, intense uh, testosterone and estrogen just flying everywhere up here, and the estrogen prevailed. Jaden uh, Jaden won the um, the competition. So, uh, but in it, it might sound like an unbiblical thing, you know, to do. But as I reflect on the event of last night, if you just, if you just were to, gl- to glance around, and many of you have been at the Sweetheart Banquets and you'll know this, but I think what we find written in Scripture takes place whenever we gather. And that is a sense it, it, that you see people serving one another when you come here. You see people caring for one another. We're well served with food, well served with the waiters and the waitresses, uh, there's wonderful conversation that takes place at the tables. There, there are connections there. And it's really it's just a, a manifestation of the gospel of Christ. The way we come together as a body of Christ. We enjoy each other's company. We, we, we laugh and we have fun until, and laugh till tears come to our eyes in some sense. But, uh, and we also saw exhibited people who were just good sports. You, you young folks were great sports in that competition. And especially with the person judging, the unrighteous taskmaster judge who messed it all up, Mr. Sam Moss. So this favoritism and bias and prejudice and everything was prevalent last night in that judging, Sam. Uh, But anyway, that's the way it was supposed to be designed. So they all played their role very well, and it it was just a great time. So we're going to transition now. Here to the book of Revelation, we're going to be in chapter 18 today. We're going to cover this chapter this morning, Lord willing. Um, But it's been a little while, so in chapter 17, we were reminded, we were introduced to, and then the revelation of the great prostitute came forth in chapter 17. That was kind of a big deal. So this prostitute that we have been informed about who just broods over, sits over, broods over the masses of humanity with, with great deception and allure and power was revealed in chapter 17 verse 5 and it says, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So Babylon the Great was the name of this great prostitute that has so much power over so many people. And Babylon, this name becomes a symbol now in Scripture of all that epitomizes or characterizes wickedness and arrogance and evil and temptation and sin. 
all of earth's abominations, not just uh, one people group or this nation or that, but now it's come to symbolize all of the evil and the opposition to God that takes place on the earth. And we know from reading scripture that Babylon is a, was a literal historical empire. And in real life, uh, they were wicked and they were brutal and they were very, very powerful. And they used their power in, in wicked, evil ways. Uh, God even used them to chastise his own people for their wickedness and for their, for their idolatry. But Babylon from that time of uh, historical origins becomes a symbol in Scripture to represent all of, of evil and wickedness and abominations. So they're kind of the example that is pulled on because it's a commonplace, it's a term now that is used and to be understood in that way. Now, every culture kind of takes on words like that or terms like that, and if you just say the term, you kind of understand the characterization, you know, what's behind it. Just to think of a <clears throat> a recent example, if I were to if I were to say a certain name, most of you I would think would immediately know exactly what I'm talking about and the characterization behind it. So if I were to point to a particular person out there and call you a Karen, you're a Karen. See, culture brings meaning into that particular concept there. So it's, it's expressing something that's identifiable, a, demand, a person that's demanding, annoying, and extremely entitled uh, to the point of being nauseating. So that one name uh, encapsulizes a certain characteristic. So Babylon has become that kind of term and that kind of symbol, and we have heard much about it in Scripture and, of course, in the book of Revelation. And then chapter 7 closed um, with the news that evil turned against evil. So it wasn't just the wicked against the righteous, but also in, in the days, the final days, evil gets so rampant that it expresses itself in the best way it knows to do, and that's through betrayal. There's no honesty or loyalty in sin and wickedness, and so evil betrays evil. Uh, kings rise against the great prostitute, and bring it down. And then finally they will make war on the Lamb. So now evil comes against the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So just in a few words. Um, no real great descriptive battle. But the Lamb conquers. Because the Lamb cannot be defeated. So what comes next? Well, in chapter 18, basically kind of looks back to chapter 17 and gives us more details about the fall of the great prostitute, the fall of Babylon the Great. And it gives us this play-by-play, uh, -play, if you will, in the form of a lament or the form of a dirge. It's, it's a, kind of a funeral service, if you will. And it's a dirge in the sense or that comes across with, oh, it's such a great tragedy, but you had it coming. I mean, everybody should have seen it coming because this great prostitute, Babylon the Great, was so entangled with so much evil and wickedness, and there was just so much uh, under the table this and, and, and injustice that we all probably should have seen it coming. So, yeah, it's, it's a tragedy, but what else do you expect? You reap what you sow. It was only a matter of time. And then within this 
lament, we also get a warning. A warning that uh, we're, we're sorry, but you had it coming to you and everybody needs to back up from Babylon the Great so that we do not also go down with this sinking ship of abomination and corruption. So with that said, let's tackle this chapter. I am going to go ahead and read all 24 verses. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning... I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning, mourning and famine, she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares, who gain wealth from her, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads. As they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, 
O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists, harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. There you have the lamenting of Babylon. Now we know that literal Babylon had its fall. God judged literal Babylon in 640 B.C. And a greater nation, a greater empire rose, of course, by the hand of God, the Persians. And they overtook Babylon, this great empire who everybody looked at its wealth and its power and assumed that it could never be taken down. And as I said, God even used this great empire to judge and chastise his own people, something that the people of God have always struggled with throughout history, and that is that we are supposed to be the righteous ones, the most moral, and yet we sin ourselves and God uses wicked people, unbelievers, even to judge his own people. And it's a hard pill to swallow. But God used it because his own people had turned against him and had worshipped idols. But just because God used original historical Babylon did not make them innocent all. They were innocent. They were brutes. They were wicked people. Uh, They brutalized their power. They took advantage of people. They killed many Israelites. They burned the city itself. God prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 50 that all this would take place. He laid it right out before it took place. Just like we're reading in Revelation, the things to come. They had their own little revelation of the things to come. And he sent this prophet. And this prophet says, flee from the midst of Babylon. And go out of the land of the Chaldeans. And be as male goats before the flock. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country. And they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. And so we learn things in this passage. And the first thing I want to draw our attention to is uh, the fleeing and the sojourning. We see it in Jeremiah. We also see it in our text today. And I think it's a good time as we consider these uh, prophetic judgments It's a good time to to point out or reflect on the fact that when you look at these judgments, you also have to see that accompanied with this terror is also tremendous portions of God's grace. Because you have this warning, this this, uh, judgment that this is going to happen based on this trajectory and people will be judged, humanity, nations will be judged for their sins. And in that sense... Yes, we have it coming to us. I think it reminds me a little bit of our lesson this morning in Sunday school 
how will we know when the Lord actually returns? Because there will be false prophets and false Christs and so forth. But I think it will be obvious. Jesus and scripture says it will be obvious enough to where you know. And I think one of the reasons that we will know is revealed in this passage in this great judgment. And that is even those that are wicked have at least enough idea or understanding of morality to know that when things get this bad, you got it coming to you. Nobody just has a free ride. When you sin, sooner or later, you're going to have to pay a price to it. And even people that don't believe in God have this sense in their hearts and their minds of understanding this has got to be how the world works. It just can't go on like this. I think when Jesus returns, there will be that kind of reckoning. Even though there's still rebellion and refusal to repent, there will be that kind of reckoning. And we see that in here. It's this idea that with judgment is uh, accompanied, or judgment is accompanied by grace. We discussed this a little bit um, just this week at our elders' dinner, where we get together once a month as elders and our wives, and we share a meal together, and then we pray for this church. And God warns even other nations, not just his own people, but other nations of the things to come. It's, It's packaged, if you will, in the same package as we unwrap it you see judgment but you see grace and little warnings here God taking care of his people in the midst of the judgments passion and love and tenderness is oozing out and how generous it is for God to do that for us these little warnings that we don't deserve you know on rare occasion uh, does God tell us what we want the things that we usually want to know in advance These aren't usually the things we're itching to know about in the future. The things we're usually itching to know about, we would just wish that God would tell us in advance. Or, you know, who am I going to marry? And which one is it? Or how many kids will I have? I mean, how big of a house should I build? What job should I take? And uh, what stocks are going to make the most money this year? Where should I invest my money? And we want to know these things, and they're practical things And they're useful things. You know, will I ever be healed from this sickness? Or is this something that I'll take to the grave with me? These are important things. And we want to know these things. For the most part, these things are not uh, announced to us in this form of clear, straightforward revelation. These are things that God reveals to us on the job training as we seek him. And as we go along, we find that his will unfolds in our daily lives. But we, we very rarely, if ever, get these kind of things that we want to know so much in advance. But the things that God wants us to know in advance, maybe we weren't looking for them, but what he wants us to know, he is sure to make clear to us and to reveal these things to us. He's very generous to share what we really, really need to know, such as warnings of judgment such as consequences of sins. There is this term in the Old Testament, and you read it almost in every book of the Bible, and it's the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and the Lord was always warning His people and other nations about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was that terrible day where people would give an account and be judged for a certain sin. He'd, he'd, he'd name out a nation and He would call out their sins and And he would tell them what they would be judged for. His own people, he would tell them, this is what you would be judged for. And it became known as 
generically the day of the Lord. And that's when you just met your sins face to face or the consequences of your sins. And so throughout history, this day of the Lord where God does judge people and nations and empires and abominations, that's everybody has their day, so to speak. And so these days of the Lord, these judgments come throughout history. And we get this sense in the end times that uh, because the world does not repent, that big day, that not just the little days of the Lord in this nation, that, but there's going to be this tremendously day of the day of the day of the Lord's that's going to come, that's building up this judgment that we deserve because of our sins. It's the day of the Lord, it's the abomination, and we, we see this, this idea here in Revelation, the day of all days. And so God is graciously warning us um, to what? To be prepared for it. Now we know about it. We want to be prepared for it. We want to try to flee from it. We want to try to separate ourselves from those entities that will face such a tremendous wrath. We found the same kind of warning when God was so gracious to send that that strange-looking man who ate locusts and lived in the desert to John the Baptist. And he said, beware, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent. It's a warning. The axe is already at the root. So those that have ears to hear, those that are willing to take God seriously and believe in His existence, well, it does them well because they know how to respond and prepare themselves for such things. But as we wrestle with these warnings to Babylon and to all wickedness, I guess, You could say, a good question to ask is, well, if Babylon has already fallen, then in John's day, and we believe this book was written, the book of Revelation was written approximately 90 AD, then who would John be referring to if it's not historical Babylon? And if Babylon's kind of take on the characterization of wicked empires and nations, well, in John's day, it would be identifying the Roman Empire. The, the Roman Empire was char- then characterized by great wickedness. It had extensive power and reach and was even continuing to conquer territory in the days of John. The Roman Empire was then in her, in her prime and this message is being given to the people in John's day as well, literally and historically. Beware, Babylon is the Roman Empire. Now, Bab- um, Rome, Rome was the Babylonian Empire. So, Rome was judged. And the judgment came forth. We know that the Roman Empire is no more. The 470s Roman Empire fell. This great empire that everybody would look at and think with such wealth and with such power, with a great military, there's just no way... This earthly power will ever fall with all the things that they have in place. But they did. Then then comes another empire. The the Byzantine Empire came and took over that through the Middle Ages. And that was great and vast. And then the Ottoman Empire came and that was a great and vast. And you see this, this process in history where these great empires are raised up. They take world dominance 
and then somebody else dominates them. And that is the course of history. It's the course of wicked humanity. It's us trying to do life down here without God. Doing it in our own way. The list goes on. So needless to say, as I think about all this and these judgments and uh, the lessons that we can learn, I think in one sense it should whet our appetites. Because as we see these great kingdoms and these great empires come and go and come and go and come and go and they leave their mark, but they don't last. What I know, I don't know about you, but for me it it whets my appetite for a kingdom that actually will rise, that will be a good kingdom that will never be overcome. It whets my appetite for the kingdom of God. Because it's only the kingdom of God, and we are a part of that kingdom, by the way, as the church, where the gates will not prevail, that's the promise. All these impressive powers that we see, and we often feel as a church so small and weak and vulnerable. In the end, we are the lasting institution. We are the body of Christ. We are the kingdom of God. And I hope as we see worldly empires and entities and powers and governments just decay and erode and be swept away in a single day, things can line up so that in a single day, tremendous powers can fall down. We don't know what's happening behind the scenes. But I hope it whets our appetite and causes a longing in our hearts for a kingdom of righteousness that will last forever instead of this new administration comes in like in our country every four years, everything the previous president did for four years and worked towards it, it's kicked to the curb and a whole new administration comes in. Now we're headed in a whole different direction. But when Christ comes, he's the king of this kingdom. He he knows his stuff. He has it all figured out. He's tried and true and he will establish a kingdom that cannot be threatened, will never ever be overcome. And when we... When we put Christ first, when we believe in God's word, we will become a child of God by repenting and asking forgiveness. We become a part of that kingdom. It's a marvelous, glorious thing. You know, in in the scripture, there were the people of God, and yet they even had the promised land. I mean, God gave them Israel. God says, I am going to make you a great nation. And yet, even those people of God, of great faith, still had this uh, whetted appetite for something even greater than that. Something even greater and grander than the land of Israel and all the blessings that it was with grapes so big you could hardly carry them, some of the spies said. Because when it gets right down to it, the people of God, the true people of God, are just passing through this world. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We're reminded of this in Peter's book, the first book in chapter 2. And here here is his message of encouragement to the body of Christ in that day. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see how he shifts the whole focus away from the things on this earth to believers having this mindset of, yeah, I'm here, but this isn't where I land. Uh, We're kind of like, as Sproul would say, a butterfly with 
with um, sensitive feet. Just not going to stay here long. We're going to land and then be in flight again. That's the mindset that we are encouraged to have in Scripture. And we know this because this word here for sojourners or exiles, it's the same word to describe what the Israelites went through when they were overtaken by Babylon. They were taken into captivity. And they were encouraged by the prophets, look, you're going to be here for 70 years. Go ahead, build your homes, build your families, build your businesses, and do the best you can to be a blessing to Babylon. The prophets did not tell these people, be grumpy and miserable for 70 years until I bring you back in the land. Make the best of it. Thrive the best you can. Influence those around you for the glory of God. But know that this will be temporary and I will bring you back. And there's that sense that we have as believers that we should have that though we are here and we should make the best of it and we should build homes if we can and build our families as we can and be a blessing to all those in our sphere and make them the best of it. But with the knowing and the understanding that this is not all there is, this is just a stepping stone to where God will take us in the end. And so our mindset and our greatest event uh, investments, in other words, we give what we have here to make the best of it, but we save and hold out the best for last. And that is the kingdom to come that will last forever and ever. I'm reminded of Abraham who was given these promises of you will become a, a mighty people and a mighty nation as many as the stars God promised him. And Hebrews tells us in verse 9 that by faith he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him on the, of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, who designer and builder is God. What a challenge that is. You see how Scripture holds up the literal promised land of Israel and Jerusalem as a wonderful blessing from God, and yet there's still a restlessness because even though you're there, you're not there. You're not home. There's another home to come. And I hope that we as today's believers, today's manifestation of the people of God, carry that same mindset in our hearts and minds and the way we conduct our affairs and the way we manage our homes and our families and interact with the sphere of influence that God has given us. We do the very best we can. But we're not earth dwellers. Earth dwellers in the book of Revelation are those who have just the opposite mindset. They say, no, no, this is my home. And I'm putting my whole heart and soul into what this is because this is all I will ever get. It's the only pleasure I will ever have in my existence, whatever that means. And so I'm going to give everything I have to it to try to bring uh, Pleasure to myself and pleasantness to myself. That's the mindset of an earth dweller. They, they dig in. They don't want to go anywhere. There's no hope outside of what we have right here. Not so for the believer. I trust that our biggest investment and our hope for all things that we have planted our stake in heaven. That our hope is in Christ and the things to come. And that that shows in the decisions that we make in the way we conduct our daily lives. So as we read about kingdoms rising and 
falling. We want to thank God for His generous warnings. And we want to keep this mindset of an exile or a sojourner. Before moving on, I want to just briefly look at a question that people ask all the time and you just can't even get away from it when it comes to this chapter in Revelation. When we think about Babylon actually being a term that characterizes wickedness, evil, and abomination, and maybe some nations of the earth, is America modern-day Babylon? Boy, you can read some books about that. And you will not run out of sermons to listen to about America being modern-day Babylon. So is there any truth to that? Is it accurate? I would say, based on my understanding, no. It's not accurate. I'm going to get a little bit more detailed here. But no, it's not accurate in the sense that America is specifically identified in any way by Scripture as a legitimate modern-day Babylon. Uh, America in, in no way is mentioned in the Scriptures. Now, I know a lot of people want to... Uh, use symbolism when it talks about the wings of eagles and so forth, which, of course, the eagle is one of our emblems, our symbols, and they'll tie it in, it has to be this and it has to be that. But it is not at all explicit in Scripture, no matter what book you read or what sermon you listen to. Honestly, it's all speculation. It might be alluring, but in the end, it's all speculation. So what happens with this understanding of Babylon is that Christians through different eras and different ages, as we are prone to do, we identify the ruling power or the ruling empire, and there's always going to be wickedness when, there, when any person or empire has that much power, and that becomes the modern-day Babylon of the age. Rome was a modern-day Babylon. Uh, in the Reformation days, the Catholic Church was identified as modern-day Babylon. And so we apply this term kind of loosely to fit our era, our culture, and our day. So what happens in Scripture is that as we're learning, really there's two Babylons. You have the literal historical Babylon, and then you have the symbolic, or maybe we might call it the spiritual Babylon. And that is the people and entities that are characterized by this same kind of wickedness or abomination. So if you want to use it in that way, there's a sense in which you could say America is a modern-day Babylon. But in our text, we read that it, re it represents all the abominations of the earth, of all the nations, not just one. So there would be no, really no need to stop there because in any great world power, you're going to find the same kind of sins and wickedness and abuse of power. And uh, we have our faults. America certainly has our faults. But I wouldn't say that we are the most evil nation on earth. And I would say thanks to our founding fathers and the Christian influence, Christian Judeo influence that came into writing these documents, there's actually still great amount of hope for America. I think if any nation in the world at this time has any hope to be anything great, it is still America. And when you look at the reasons that the real reasons that many people can't wait to come into our nation, it's not because they want to do evil and wickedness. It's because they just want to make a good living. They want to be in a place where they can make more money and provide for their families because they don't get that under the governments of other nations. So if you look at the big picture, you can land all over the place 
with this, this topic. But I think you, to, to say specifically that America, make the case America is the modern day Babylon, just can't be sustained in Scripture. But can we be characterized as that? Sure. And those are the things that we, we pray for on a daily, if not a weekly basis. We pray for our country to turn back for God. We pray for God to use us in a mighty way. And the, the document there, the paperwork's there for us to do that. We just need to live before the Lord in obedience and in passion and light. So, I just wanted to touch on that. America's not specifically modern day Babylon as if it's written in Scripture. But... It is a Babylon in the sense of other nations. The Babylon is a nation that basically, or, or, or a powerful entity says, come to me, my people, and I will fulfill your greatest longings. I will give you what your heart desires. But it is in the form of idolatry. Modern day Babylons are those power structures that call humanity to themselves, but really to lead you away from the living God. By fulfilling the cravings of your sinful hearts. So we have plenty of that in our day and age. If the shoe fits, wear it. Second, we see the collapse of commerce. And I, want to, I don't want to go into great detail about this because, uh, well, John goes into great detail for me. I mean, he just lays it all out. You have merchants of land, merchants of the sea, everybody who was making all of this money off of of uh, buying and selling, whether it was uh, ethical or unethical, it didn't matter. They were making money. They were getting rich. And now they're so sad that their cash cow has been cut off. Where will the money come from now? They're not really lamenting about, oh, all these people got hurt in this great city and the beauty and the statues and the structures and it all fell, the economy and everything. And I'm just so heartbroken. No, they're heartbroken over their pocketbooks. They don't care about the people so much. They care about the money. And it's all been shut down. Uh, the goose is no longer laying the golden eggs for them. So really, it's this idea that uh, money is everything. Not the nation. Not the empire. Uh, not the integrity of things. But the loss of money that flowed into their pockets from this. Now they rejoiced with evil or whatever it was that put money in their pockets, and now they mourn because it is no longer there. There's a very similar uh, description in Ezekiel 27, if you care to turn there uh, sometime and read it, when the great wealthy nation of Tyre, who provided all these goods, fell, and it just kind of cut the commerce and the riches off for people. So God, John goes into great detail listing all of the merchandise of his day. And they're all cut off. No more clothes, no more spices, no more f certain kinds of foods, no more building materials, uh, no more craftsmanship. And even uh, the slave market, the selling of souls, was cut off. That big business there, it all collapsed. So the economy was so robust and there was so much power there and strength that no one dreamed that just in one hour it could all fall away symbolically. So quickly it could just collapse and turn into
to sand because in their minds they looked at what it was producing and in their minds they were determined that nothing could happen to it. There's a proverb that we are privy to in Proverbs 18.11 that tells us how this happened. And it says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. But what happens is we put in our imaginations into our minds that wealth just is our city. It's this high wall. In our imaginations, it's saving us from all kinds of things. It's saving us from all kinds of despair and things that we want to keep away from us in our bubble of life. Money and the economy is doing that in our imaginations. And the higher and the thicker that wall gets, we think, well, we're even safer. And it comes in a lot of different forms. We imagine all the ways that it will save us. All the ways that it will spare us from the things that we fear the very most. And it's not just the money, but it's the idols that the money reveals. I like this quote from Timothy Keller. Uh, So it's not just the money, but it's what we want to do with it. And he says, what your heart most loves and adores, what it most rests in, is where you most effortlessly, joyfully, almost addictively spend your money. Some put it into savings to feel safe. Others put it into clothing or things that make them appear attractive or sophisticated in order to get people's approval and admiration. Others put it into homes and memberships and clubs in order to get status and power. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So that's the idea. The lament, the dirge, the mourning. It's a mourning. It's a true sickness. It's a true heartfelt sorrow. But not that people's lives were destroyed, but it's that my idol was destroyed. Because as Babylon sinks, so does the idol that I worship, whatever it might be. My safety, my net, my imaginary wall has just collapsed along with it. So there's great mourning. But it's how ironic in this chapter of lament, there is this little verse in this little group of people that is not lamenting or mourning, but are actually rejoicing in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The saints that we saw in Revelation 6-9 that were under the altar, and they were saying, how much longer, God, will you allow the blood of the saints to be spilled? They wanted vengeance to be vindicated. And God told them in that chapter not yet of all things more blood needs to be spilled but now we come to chapter 20 and this is it now he says comes the vindication now you can rejoice because God will judge those that have harmed his people and then lastly and really this is my conclusion here A time to move. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. You know, heaven often uh, offers this exhortation to God's people. Come, Come out of that. Get away from that. Come over here. 
So how do we apply this to our day and age? How do we come out of whatever Babylon that we happen to be living in? Well, Christians apply this in different ways. Uh, Some Christians say, well, what that means is we actually need to be separatists. And we need to withdraw from all society and only hang out amongst ourselves and, and create our own communities and not interact with the world, but rather come out of it because it's too wicked out there. Some land there. We see evidence of that. And some say, well, um, not, not quite that dramatic, but we, need, we do need to only primarily commune with our own people and not interact with the world and not be a part of culture, not participate in this and participate in that, but to cut ourselves off kind of culturally, and we see some of, some of that. Some people say, you know, literally we, we just create our own commune. That was not really possible in John's day for them to come out of Rome because Rome was so vast. If you were to run from this place, you'd just run into the hands of even worse barbarians and pagans. So it's not to be taken literally. So what is the point here as we just conclude and think through this? Wherever you are in earth, wherever you are in the world, the idea is to step away, is to get away with the evil, get away from the evil and the abominable things that are taking place. Don't take part in those. It's not to necessarily physically move the location of your house or to completely withdraw from being salt and light in society. I mean, we also have the command to be witnesses of Christ. And God knew when he gave that command that it would not always be on favorable terms, that people will, were warned that people aren't just going to open their homes to us, but he didn't say, therefore, do not witness about my truth anymore. He's, we are still sent out. But the idea is to be sent out, to be a light, to, to profess Christ and verbally and to live that out in front of others so that they will glor- see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But to not participate in the evil aspects of the culture and the things that, would, that God hates that we know that are re- revealed in Scripture. But to step away from those things, to separate those things. We are in the world, Jesus said. And yet we're not of the world. And that's the tension and the challenge for every believer. What does that look like for us in our lives? How can I still be a favorable influence and yet not get caught up in the strong allurements of my culture that is offered here? Come out of those traps. Come out of the profanity. Come out of the idolatry that we're surrounded with. Come out of the, the blasphemy and the cruelty and the injustice and and the temptations to worship certain things, and the worldly philosophies that appeal to our flesh. Come away from all of those things, and that system of lust and, and uh, fame and fortune-seeking. And come to Christ. Come to truth. Come to God's Word. May that be your strong tower. May that be your place of hope. May that be where you have staked your heart, and your soul, and everything there is about you. Come and flee to Christ. Come and find the mercy of God. Because the end is coming, we are warned. So come out. May God bless the preaching of His Word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.